18. Photographiar. Photograph. On the way home from Dad's, I take as many photos as I can. Naked branches and tree trunks, fallen leaves, a little girl falling asleep on her mother's arms on the bus, the hands of a man holding onto the pole, the blur of buildings and houses as we drive by, Frank's corner store, Lily's house, the street sign at the corner of my block, the door to my house, and before I go inside, I turn the camera on me. 19. Libros. Books. This place feels magical, I say to Maxine, when she first told me she was bringing me to a bookstore. I wasn't that excited to go, but Powell's isn't just any bookstore. It's a massive haven that sells any book you can think of. There are so many rooms and floors, they give you a map. I've never ever heard of a bookstore giving you a map so you can get through it. We go to the art section, which is not a section, but a whole room. A short tan woman with a kinky afro walks over to us. Can I help you with anything? Hi, Maxine says. This is Jade. She's an artist, a collagist, and we're looking for some books for inspiration that show the work of black collagists. Afro woman says, oh, so you're an artist? She's walking fast through the aisles. What do you make art about? She turns down an aisle, starts slowing down, and then stops when we get to the middle. I tell her all the things I love about making art. Well, I have the perfect books for you, she says. She pulls a book off the shelf. Have you heard of Murmare Bairdin? He's one of the greats. You'll love his collages. We walk to another aisle in search of more books. Afro woman scans the shelves. Ah, uh, here we go. She pulls out another book. This is a small collection of work from the artist Micheline Thomas, she says. She does mixed media collages. This is gorgeous, Maxine says. She hands me the book. I look through the pages. I have never seen art like this before, not in a book. Afro woman walks us to another aisle. Yeah, Micheline used to live in Portland, she tells us. I don't hear all of what she is saying because I'm looking through the book, staring at these brown women and their faces that are pieced together with different shades of brown, different size features, all mismatched, yet perfectly puzzled together to make the whole being. I want to do this, I say out loud. They don't hear me because they're too busy talking about Micheline and where she went to school and where she lived in Portland. The whole way to the cashier, I'm trying to choose which book to get now and which one to come back for. When we're in line, Maxine takes both books and says, anything else you want? Is that a trick question? I say no. She pays for the books. I can't stop thinking, Maxine, she says. You're more than welcome. I can't stop thanking, Maxine, she says. You are more than welcome. Just thank me for making some great art. Once we're in the car, I feel bad because we're not talking much. Seems like we should be getting to know each other. But the whole way home, all I can do is stare at these masterpieces. Study the making of me. 20. Dose. 12. There are 12 girls who've been selected for the Woman to Woman Mentorship Program. 12 seeds, 12 prayers, 12 daughters, 12 roots, 12 histories, 12 reasons, 12 rivers, 12 questions, 12 songs, 12 smiles, 12 yesterdays, 12 tomorrows. Twenty-one, Mujer a Mujer, Woman to Woman. Being a part of Woman to Woman is like having 12 new aunts. The way they all ask, and how's school? And then, any boys trying to get with you? 
The way one is good for advice about choosing the right college and another is good for advice about choosing the right shade of makeup to complement your complexion. Tonight's gathering is at Sabrina's house. It's girl talk night, Sabrina says. She's sitting cross-legged on the living room floor. The hardwood is shiny, like she mopped before we came. All 12 girls and all 12 mentors are here, and it doesn't even feel crowded. I think about all of us trying to squeeze into my house, how we'd bulge out of every corner like chubby feet in too tight shoes. I hope tonight's topic is how to get a house like Sabrina's. That's what I want to know how to do. Most girls are on the floor, but I got here early, so I have a seat on one of the sofas. Everywhere I turn, I see snacks. Bowls of popcorn drizzled with olive oil and pepper. There's dried edamame in a small dish and chocolate-covered sunflower seeds in a square bowl. The colorful tiny seeds look like miniature Easter eggs. In the kitchen, fresh grapefruit slices float in a water cooler. I like plain water better, so I took some from the faucet before I sat down. Help yourself to the snacks, Sabrina says. Healthy living is healthy eating. There's a tray of vegetables in the center of the coffee table with a small bowl of hummus for dipping. We'll have one of these girl talk sessions once a quarter, Sabrina tells us. Every time there'll be a different topic. Tonight's topic is dating. Sabrina asks each mentee to write one or two questions on the blank pieces of paper and put them in the question box. I don't write a question. I can tell by the looks in everyone's faces who's excited about talking about dating and who's terrified. Tamar literally sighs out loud, like she'd rather be anywhere but here. I see Ryan nudge her, telling her to pull it together. The 12 of us fit into four categories. Since Kaya is dating a guy who's in college, and Tamara and Ryan are sitting here looking like they could lead this session, I put them in the I-know-everything-there-is-to-know-about-relationships crew. Tracy, Ivy, Tamika, and Gabriella are in the I'm-focused-on-school-and-don't-have-time-for-anything-else group. I guess I'm in that category, too. I mean, I don't mind talking about dating, but it seems like every time adults have something to say to girls about what kind of boy not to talk to and what not to do with a boy... And even when they ask about our grades and we tell them we have good grades, they usually say something like, well, that's good. I'm glad you're not distracted by them boys. The only girls who seem excited by this discussion are Mercy, Sadie, and Lexus. They are the curious girls. They've dated before, but have so much to learn. And then there's Jasmine. She's the only I'm saving myself for marriage girl. Right now, Jesus is my boyfriend. Sabrina says, I've asked each mentor to come prepared to share the things they wish they had told someone about dating when they were your age. Sabrina looks at Melanie. Who wants to start, she asks, when she clearly wants Melanie to speak first. Melanie crosses her legs. She's one of the oldest mentors of the group, mid-40s, I think. She's married and talks all about her husband like he's her favorite everything. Sure, I'll give it a go, she says. When I first got Sabrina's email, I thought, well, if I'm really honest with myself, the truth is I was given some very good advice about dating. I just didn't listen. The women laugh in agreement. Seriously, she says, my mom schooled me well. She told me that before thinking about dating and sex and all of that, I needed to worry about myself because I'd never be able to love anyone or treat anyone with dignity if I didn't first love and respect myself. Rachel, one of the mentors, snaps her fingers like she's at a poetry cafe. Girl, you can say that again. All the women are nodding, their heads moving like synchronized swimmers. Tamar asked, but what if you already know who you are and what you want? Another woman speaks. She looks at Tamar and says, you think you know yourself, but trust me, you will keep growing and developing. That's why you need to take the pressure off yourselves to have these serious relationships. You will change so much in the next 10 years. Sabrina interrupts in ways you can't even imagine. Right, the woman says. 
Ryan looks like she's checked out of the conversation. She's playing with the chocolate-covered sunflower seeds, lining them up on her plate according to color. Sabrina speaks again. Any other mentors want to add something, she asked. Maxine hasn't spoken. She's looking all over the room, everywhere except Sabrina's direction, like she doesn't want to be called out. She must be thinking of John, must be thinking she has no advice to give. Brenda speaks. I guess I'll add that relationships should be fun. I mean, there should be real joy in spending time with the person you're dating. And actually, this goes for friendships, too. If the person is making you the brunt of the joke all the time, or if they're dismissive of your feelings, then you need to stop wasting your time. Now that's the truth, someone says. Then Sabrina says, with that, we'll go to the question box. She shakes the velvet box and pulls out an index card. Our first question is, how do I get guys to notice me? I'll take that one, Carla says. I think being yourself will attract the person who's best for you. You have to be true to yourself. Don't change what makes you you because someone is going to want you. And guys who don't, well, that's their loss. The next question Sabrina pulls out and says, how do you get over someone you love? I don't mean to, but I immediately look at Maxine. She looks away quickly when our eyes almost connect. I wonder how it feels to be here as a person who's supposed to have it all together, but has some of the same questions that we do. Melanie says, getting over someone is hard. You will think that your heart will always be broken, but the truth is, it won't always hurt this bad. Sabrina ends the night with a talk about following our dreams and believing in ourselves. You have to believe that you are worthy of love, of happiness, that you are worthy of your wildest dreams come true. When she says this, so many thoughts rush through my mind. I'm thinking about how had mom had plenty of dreams, and EJ is not short on self-confidence, and Lily has known she wants to be a poet since we were in middle school, so it can't be just about believing and dreaming. My neighborhood is full of big dreamers, but I know that doesn't mean those dreams will come true. I know something happens between the time our mothers and fathers and teachers and mentors send us out into the world telling us, the world is yours and you are beautiful and you can be anything, and the time we return to them. Something happens when people tell me I have a pretty face, ignoring me from the neck down. When I watch the news and see unarmed black men and women shot dead over and over, it's kind of hard to believe this world is mine. Sometimes it feels like I leave home a whole person, sent off with kisses from mom who's hanging on her every hope on my future. By the time I get home, I feel like my soul has been shattered into a million pieces. Mom's love repairs me. Whenever mom's cooking is simmering on the stove and EJ's music is filling every inch of the house and I'm making my art, I believe everything those women are saying about being worthy of good things. Those are the times I feel secure, feel just fine. I look in the mirror and see my dad's eyes looking back at me and my mom's thick hair, thick everything. And that's when I believe my dark skin isn't a curse, that my lips and hips and hair and nose don't need fixing that my dream of being an artist and traveling the world isn't foolish. Listening to these mentors, I feel like I can prove the negative stereotypes about girls like me wrong. Then I can and will and do more and be more. But when I leave, it happens again, the shattering. And this makes me wonder if a black girl's life is only about being stitched together and coming undone, being stitched together and coming undone. I wonder if there's ever a way for a girl like me to feel whole. Wonder if any of these women can answer that. Twenty-two, Almorzar, to have lunch. Sam and I are walking from the bus stop to school. She is talking nonstop about Friday and Saturday and Sunday 
like it isn't Monday morning. Can you come over this weekend, or do you have something to do with women to women? Sam asked me. Sorry, can't. Am I going to have to find a new best friend? Sam asks. I feel bad that I don't have time to hang out with Sam. We only spend time together on the bus or at lunch. Every now and then we do our homework at Daily Blend, a coffee shop not too far from our house. We usually split a pastry and order iced coffees. Sometimes the owner gives us free refills. We splash our way through the puddles as we enter St. Francis. I see Glamour Girl pulling into her, into her I see Glamour Girl pulling her car into the student parking lot. I've actually had to stop calling her Glamour Girl because Sam gets confused and can't keep a straight face whenever someone says her real name. So I call her Kennedy now. Kennedy waves and I wave back and hurry into the building to get out of the rain. See you at lunch, Sam says. Okay. I go to my locker and take off my wet coat and pull off the heavy books out of my backpack. I can hear Kennedy coming because her laugh fills the hallway. She's walking with Josiah. Lunch at Zach's, Josiah says to everyone in the hallway, it seems. He looks at me. No excuses this time. Kennedy is driving. I say okay, but only because EJ gave me some money. He does that sometimes after he's DJed at a big event. Kennedy gives me half a smile and says, good morning. She searches through her junkyard of a locker and finally pulls out a book. Jade, I didn't know you walked to school. I can give you a ride, she said. Oh, I don't walk. I take the bus. She looks confused. The bus? Where do you live? North Portland, I tell her. Oh, Kennedy says, like all kinds of light bulbs are flashing in her head. That makes so much sense now. She slams her locker and walks away. See you at lunch, she says. Okay, I say, even though now I'm not even sure I want to go. 23. Rare to laugh. Sam and I eat with Kennedy, Josiah, and two of their friends. I have no idea how six of us are going to fit into this car. When we get to the car, one of the girls, the only other white girl with us besides Sam, looks over and says, um, maybe you should sit in the front. Knowing my wide hips would take up too much space in the back seat. When we get to Zach's Burgers, they are impatient with the woman who's taking the order and so rude to her when she gets it wrong and brings Kennedy regular fries instead of sweet potato fries. Kennedy has a small tantrum because we don't have time to wait for a fresh batch. And the whole ride back, she whines about how she's wasting her calories on something she doesn't even really want. And the other girl talks so bad about Northeast Portland, not knowing she's talking about Sam's neighborhood, not knowing you shouldn't ever talk about a place like it's unlivable when you know someone, someone lives there. She goes on and on about how dangerous it used to be and how houses are small and how it's supposed to be the new cool place. But in her opinion, it's just a polished ghetto, she says. God, I'd be so depressed if I lived there. Kennedy and the other girls agree. That would be the worst thing ever, the white girl says, so I don't understand how anyone could be happy there. Me either. I'd be so depressed. If they feel that way about Sam's neighborhood, they must think I live in a wasteland. Josiah is eating his food and staring out of the conversation. Sam doesn't say anything the whole ride, but I can feel her eyes burning my back. When we get out, we barely say thanks for the ride, barely say goodbye to any of them. We sit in the hallway and eat our lunch. Sam and I on one side, Kennedy and the girls on the other. Josiah's gone to the computer lab because he gobbled his food down by the time we got back to St. Francis. Sam swallows a mouthful of her burger and then whispers, I'd be so depressed if I lived over here. Me too. I don't care that Kennedy has a car. I never want to do this again, Sam says. Me neither. I eat a handful of fries. But we have to go back to Zach's, Sam says. And then we jinx each other. This burger is so good, we say. 
We laugh, our mouths full. Kennedy and her friends look over at us. They don't know why we're laughing so hard. Don't understand our joy. 24. Tener hambre. To be hungry. When I get home, there's a note from mom by the phone along with a $20 bill. The note tells me to get something for dinner because she has a doctor's appointment. I decide on Dairy Queen so I can get a blizzard. Who cares if it's cold outside? I stop by Lily's on my way, but she's not home, so I get on the bus and go by myself. Even though it's not late, it's dark, and I don't really like to walk in the dark by myself, but tonight I don't have a choice. Fall leaves cover the ground. Soon they'll be trampled on by trick-or-treaters. Halloween is next weekend. Carved pumpkins sit on porches, their faces lit and haunting. And on the door outside the costume store, there's a mummy holding a costumes on sale sign. The line at Dairy Queen is backed up all the way to the door, and it's hard to tell who's ordered already and who hasn't. There's a woman holding on to her toddler's hand while fussing with her other child, who looks about five, telling him to stop touching the dirty table that's coated with days-old ketchup. A group of boys are sitting at the table, all spread out and loud like they're eating at home in their dining room. You order yet? A man asks me. He counts the single-dollar bills in his hand, looks at the menu, and then counts again. Not yet, I tell him. I order my meal and step out to the side so the man behind me can order. I hear the boys at the table laughing and talking about who they would date and who they wouldn't. The guy in the light blue shirt says, What about Mercedes? And the rest of the group laughs and shakes their head and fits of protest. One of them says, Man, Mercedes' breath smells worse than your shoes. Then the one wearing a green hat adds, And she's got too much attitude. They go on with their whatabouts, naming girls who are nowhere in sight. But they start pointing at women who are in the restaurant. What about her? Green Hat says. Oh, she's a 10. Perfect 10. They all agree that the next girl is a 7. And just when my order is ready, I hear one of them say, What about her? I know he's pointing to me, which means they're all looking at me from behind. Not good. The man at the counter calls my number and gives me my food. The boys behind me assess me. One of them says, I'll give her a 5. The other, a 5? Man, she's so big she breaks the scale. Another voice, man, thick girls are fine. I don't know what's wrong with you. Well, if she's so fine, go talk to her. The man behind the counter looks at me and shakes his head and says, boys. I force a smile. Have a good evening, he says. I wonder if any of these boys ever sit in a room for boys, talk night, and discuss how to treat women. Who teaches them how to call out to a girl when she's walking by, minding her own business? Who teaches them that girls are parts? butts, breasts, legs, not whole beings. I was going to eat at Dairy Queen, but I don't want to sit through the discussion of if I'm a five or not. I eat a few fries before I walk out. Hey, hold up. My boy wants to talk to you, Green Hat says. He follows me, yelling into the dark night. I keep walking. Don't look back. Oh, so it's like that? Forget you then. Don't nobody want your fat ass anyway. Don't know why you're up in a Dairy Queen. Need to be on a diet. He calls me every derogatory name a girl could ever be called. I keep walking. Don't look back. When I get on the bus, it's fuller than I expected it to be. I want to eat, but I decide to wait. Who wants to see a big girl eating fries and a burger on a bus? By the time I am home, my fries are cold, but the burger is still good. I don't throw the bag away. I'm going to use it tonight. Tear it up and make it into something. Maybe a dress for a girl more confident than I am. Who doesn't feel insecure about eating whatever she wants in public? Maybe I'll morph it into a crown for the queen, dad says I am. 25. Yamar. To name. 
The crowd is in the center. It's not a princess crown, not dainty and sweet. In the background, the names he could have called me emerge. Hija, amiga, erudita, artista, sonador, daughter, friend, scholar, artist, dreamer. 26. El Barrio, the neighborhood. So tell me again, what stop do I get off at, Sam asked. I repeat the directions to her, part of me not believing she's really coming. After the fuss her grandma gave, I never thought she'd go anywhere past Lombard and MLK. Can you meet me at the bus stop? I told my grandparents you'd meet me and walk me back. I want to say no. I want to say, if you don't feel safe coming to my house, then don't come. But instead I say, sure. Because I know Sam really wants to come, and I know she wouldn't be so scared if her grandma hadn't polluted her mind with all those stories. I time the ride and leave to meet Sam. I zip my jacket, pull my hood over my head. October is gone and November has settled in. Not a lot of rain this month, but cloudy, cold, and gray. Always. Sam is not on the first bus, and for one moment, just one, I think, what if something happened to her? The whole story plays out in my mind. She'd be on the news every day because she is a white girl, and white girls who go missing always make the news. I will volunteer and join the other searchers. We will search all the many places a body could be. Cathedral Park, some hidden under bush under St. John's Bridge. For months, people will tell girls and women to be careful and walk in pairs. But no one will tell boys and men not to rape women, not to kidnap us and toss us into rivers. And it will be a tragedy, only because Sam died in a place she didn't really belong to. No one will speak of the black and Latino girls who die here, who are from here. A bus screeches to a stop. I swallow those thoughts, watch the passengers exit the bus, and then I see Sam getting off at the back, smiling her Sam smile. We walk to Frank's. Jade, my friend, where have you been? Frank asks. He grabs the silver tongs and begins putting Jojo's into a small white bag. I can tell he just made them. The potato wedges have that crisp golden look that I like. He throws a few packets of ketchup in the bag. I've been busy with school, I tell him. By the time I come home, you're closed. That's good, that's good, he says. He begins putting chicken wings into another white bag. Four? Yes, please. He nods and puts in a few extra. Sam walks over to the Isle of Chips. Frank whispers, How you liking it out there with all them white folks? It's all right, I tell him. Good, good. Sam returns with a bag of Doritos. I hand them to Frank and give him money. He waves his hand in the air. It's on the house today, he says. Tell your mom I said hello. Haven't seen her in a while either. I will, I say. Thanks for this. I take the food and walk away. As I'm going out the door, Lily's coming in. I just left your house. EJ said you should be back soon, she says. She reaches out to hug me. I hug her back and smell the hair grease and fruity lotion she uses all in one. Feels like I haven't seen you in forever, Lily says. I know, I came by the other night, but you weren't home, I tell her. Don't even try to put this on me. You're the one who's been, who has to take a canoe, a plane, and a bus to school. If you would be regular, I'd be seeing you every day. Lily barely gets her joke out. She's laughing so hard. Then she finally notices that I'm not alone, and she pulls her laugh in. This is Sam, I tell her. Finally! Lily opens her arms wide like she's known Sam forever. They hug. She's good with anybody who's good with me, and vice versa. <clears throat> nice to meet you, Sam says. What are you two about to do, Lily asks. Nothing, just going back to my house. Lily walks the aisles and gets a candy bar and a soda. After she pays, we walk out together. You want to go to Andrea's? Kobe's there, she says. 
Lily and Andrea are cousins. They've lived together since they were in middle school, but Lily always calls it Andrea's house. Kobe is their cousin, too. He might as well live there. Every time I go over, he's there or on his way or just leaving. Sam and I eat the JoJo's on the way. Lily gulps her soda. When we get to Andrea's house, her mom points towards the door at the end of the long hallway. They in there, she says. Andrea and Kobe are in her bedroom, listening to music. When they see me, they start screaming like I'm some celebrity or something. Jade! Andrea is the first one to hug me. She's wearing jeans and a shirt, but somehow she still looks stylish. Her makeup is flawless. Foundation, eyeshadow, mascara, lip gloss. Her weave is long, a mixture of blonde and brown wavy hair. Andrea holds on to me, and when she lets go, she asks, Where have you been? She's been handling her business, Kobe says. He kisses me on both cheeks. How's my girl, he asks. I'm good, Kobe. How are you? Girl, you know me. I stay fabulous, he says. And who do we have here? He looks Sam up and down. This is my friend Sam. She goes to my school. Kobe hugs her and then reaches for the plastic grocery bag in my hand. What you got up in there? I take out one of the chicken wings and pass the bag. He takes one, grabs the napkin, and gives the bag to Andrea. The five of us feast on some corner store food. Sam asks, so do you all go to the same school? Andrea, Kobe, and Lily nod. Andrea says, we go to Northside. I like it there. I mean, it's not like St. Francis, you know. She looks at me. We're not traveling the world and learning a million languages. Kobe laughs. How many languages do you speak now, Jade? Don't do that, I say. I'm only learning one other language. Andrea swallows a handful of chips. French, she asks. Lily jumps in. You know Jade is all about Spanish. Do you guys remember when we were in elementary school and Jade said she wanted to go to Sesame Street and speak Spanish with Maria and Louis and work in the fix-it shop? They laughed at me and I laughed too. She was like, I'm going to travel the world and be rich and buy my mom a big house. Remember that, Lily asks? That's still the goal, I tell them. Lily looks at Sam and says, but for real, there's not much to say about Northside. We don't have all the electives you do at St. Francis. The only club that's worth mentioning is the after-school poetry club. It's kind of DIY, though. Sam says, DIY? Yeah, it's not really an official club or anything. My English teacher, Mrs. Baker, lets us use her room after school to write poems. There's no teacher. We just kind of meet up and write and then share. That's pretty cool, Sam says. Lily reaches for a pillow to prop it up against her back. Not as cool as having a garden on your rooftop and cooking classes. Well, yeah, but I don't know many teachers at St. Francis who would let us stay in their classroom and write poems. I mean, they'd make it so formal that they'd take the fun out of it, you know? It really would have to become a club or an after-school class with a staff advisor and blah, blah, blah. No freedom to just be, you know? She's right, I tell them. Just to be sure, Lily, Kobe, and Andrea know Sam isn't trying to make them feel better about Northside. Lily's poems are so good. She could probably teach the class, I tell Sam. Lily smiles. Big. Like she needed to hear that. Andrea turns the music up a little and says, This is my song! And that gets us all singing and listening to music for the rest of the afternoon. When it's time for Sam to go home, she takes her cell phone out and calls her grandfather to let him know she's on her way. Lily gives me a look and says, You're walking her to the bus stop? I'll go too. We say our goodbyes to Andrea and Kobe and leave. And when we walk to the bus stop, Lily says to Sam, So did you just move to Portland? Me? Oh no. I was born at Emanuel Hospital. I've lived in Portland my whole life. Oh, Lily says, her brows scrunched in a fit of confusion. So why? So where do you live? Northeast Portland, not too far from Peninsula Park. 
Lily doesn't ask any more questions. She keeps walking. We make it to the bus stop just as the bus is pulling up. See you, Sam says. We wave and say goodbye. On the way home, I tell Lily what Sam's grandma said about North Portland. That's why I walked her to the bus stop, I say, to make her grandparents comfortable. Lily laughs. She says, white people are a trip. What do you mean? I can't believe her grandparents are scared to let her come over here. There are a lot of white people who live over here. Don't they know that, she asked? And maybe they don't know, but Northeast has its sketchy streets still. It hasn't changed over there that much. Lily shakes her head. How are you going to live in a hood, but be afraid to come to another hood, she says. We laugh about that the whole way home. Agradecido. Thankful. For Thanksgiving, Mom and I do our annual tradition. This time, EJ and Lily join us. We go downtown and volunteer at the Portland Rescue Mission. We don't have much, but we have more than a lot of other people, Mom says. I hope one day my family gets to a place where we can be thankful just to be thankful, and not because we've compared ourselves to someone who is less than we do. After we're done dishing out turkey dinners with all the holiday fixings, we eat dinner at my house. Mom made ham with her not-so-secret ingredient of brown sugar, and all the traditional sides are spread across the table. Everything looks so good, you'd never know that this wasn't from some fancy dining room, holding it all up. As we eat, Lily says, my teacher, Mrs. Phillip, doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving. Can you believe that? Mom puts her fork down. Why not? She doesn't have anything to be thankful for? EJ swallows and says, oh, Mrs. Phillip, I remember her. She's that revolutionary activist fight the power teacher at Northside. I loved her class, he says. I remember her telling us that Thanksgiving should actually be a national day of mourning or something like that. Lily nods. That's exactly what she says. What does that even mean, Mom asks. EJ answers. Basically, we're sitting here feasting and celebrating that our nation was stolen from indigenous people. Columbus didn't discover nothing. All of a sudden, my food doesn't taste as good as before. Mom wipes her mouth with her napkin. I've never thought about it like that. Thanksgiving has always been a day for getting together with family, a day to thank God for my personal blessings. But well, I guess your teacher has a point. Mom takes another bite of food. Lily says, yeah, Mrs. Phillips is always asking us to think about others' perspectives. Next week, we're having a cultural exchange with teens who attend a program at the Native American Youth and Family Center. I think we went there too, EJ says, and they came over to the wreck. I feel so embarrassed that I've never even thought about any of this. Never realized there was a community center for Native American youth here in Portland. Mom, EJ, and Lily keep on talking, comparing the experience of African Americans and Native Americans in the United States. I don't even know what was said to make EJ get all fired up. He's talking like he's in the debate. I mean, I get all of that. The U.S. has done some messed up things. But I'd rather live here than any other country. Real talk. I feel what Mrs. Phillips is saying and everything. But at the end of the day, we still got a lot to be thankful for for living here. Mom takes a bite of food, then says, Jade, you're mighty quiet over there. What do you think? Me, I take a moment to get my thoughts together. I guess, well, you're all right. I think the U.S. has a lot to be thankful for and a lot to apologize for. The rest of dinner is more somber than usual. The mood doesn't lighten up until Mom brings out the peach cobbler that Lele and I made. It's the first time we've ever baked anything from scratch. Mom dishes out the cobbler for each of us. I watch her as she takes the first bite. You like it? I ask. Mm-hmm, she says, even though the look on her face says she wants to spit it out. EJ gets a spoon and scoops out a bite. Let me taste, he says. He blows on the spoon all dramatic, like it's burning hot, and then he puts it into his mouth. 
He swallows and looks at Mom, who gives him her don't-start-nothing look, and then he says, no comment. Lily hits him on the arm. Forget you. Next time you make the dessert. Next time, let's just get ice cream from Safeway. We all end up laughing, and the night ends with card games and Scrabble. I go to bed full in so many, many ways. 28. Las Diferencias. Differences. It's the first week of December. The rain is steady and the air is cold. Maxine honks her horn for me to come out, and I get into her car and I'm greeted by the blowing heat. It feels like a sauna in here. We drive downtown to the Portland Art Museum. Have you been to a museum before, Maxine asks? Does OMSI count? Kind of. Well, not really. I mean, OMSI is interactive, so it's not the same as traditional museums. That's what makes it so unique. Where we're going today is, like, well, I don't know. It might be different than what you've experienced. Like, you can't touch the art, and you won't be able to take photos, and it's a really quiet space, so we'll have to talk softly. I feel like she thinks I don't know how to act in public or something. Okay, got it, I say. I look out the window. The weeping clouds drench the ground. Maxine turns her windshield wipers to a faster speed. When we get to the museum, we meet up with the rest of the group. Sabrina repeats some of the same rules Maxine told me in the car. She gives us a time to meet back at this spot. Have fun, she says. As we enter the first exhibit, Maxine's photo phone rings. Give me a sec, she says. She walks away from me and answers her phone. John? I stand at the side entrance. Ten minutes pass. I go find Maxine. She's outside standing in front of the building. When she sees me, she mouths, I'm so sorry. This is important. She shoes me off with her hand. Go ahead. Go in without me. I stand there for a moment. Are you sure? She nods. I walk away. I wonder what they have to talk about. I mean, when you break up with someone, it's over. That's it. What's left to discuss over and over? And why do these conversations have to happen when Maxine is with me? For all the things about Maxine that I respect and admire, there are things like this that make me feel like she can't really tell me anything about loving myself and taking care of myself, because here she is, doing the opposite. I walk around the museum and bump into another mentor-mentee pair who are taking photos, even though there's a sign that says no photographs allowed. Hey, Miss Jade, Brenda calls out. Where's Maxine? On the phone, outside. I don't try to hide my frustration. Brenda makes a confused face but doesn't say anything. You can join us, she says. We walk through the museum, but I can't even really enjoy it. I feel like I'm intruding on their time, and I can't stop thinking how rude it was for Maxine to take that phone call, especially from John. I stray from Brenda and Jasmine and walk through the photograph collection. I've walked through most of the exhibits when I see Sabrina, who tells me it's time to meet up at the front so we can reflect. We're all supposed to say one thing we enjoyed and one question we have. I skip out on the closing and go to the bathroom. When I come out of the restroom, Maxine is sitting on a bench in the lobby. So sorry about that. We had to have that conversation, she says. I don't say anything. I can't even fake a that's okay smile. Well, I feel terrible that we didn't spend time together. How about I take you to dinner? I don't really want to say yes, but I'm hungry, and I know there aren't many options for dinner at home. Let's walk to someplace close, she says. On the way to the restaurant, Maxine does most of the talking, because I don't really have anything to say to her. Plus, it's hard to walk and talk at this pace, going uphill. I'll be out of breath if I say too much. So, what did you think, she asked. I want to tell her that I think she should have called John back later. That I think I should be important, too. But I know there's only one answer she's looking for. It was awesome. I loved it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, this city has so much to offer, so much great art to see. People just stay in their bubble of North Portland and never get out to see all the city has, she says. Have your friends ever been here? 
I know she's not referring to my friends at St. Francis, but the ones in my neighborhood. Probably, I say, even though I'm not sure. When we get to the restaurant, there's a short wait and we are seated. Once we've had time to look the menu over, the waitresses approach the table. Maxine orders grilled salmon on top of arugula and an Arnold Palmer. She says to me, get whatever you want, okay? I really want a burger and fries, but I don't want a healthy eating, healthy living lecture right now. So even though I've never had arugula and I have no idea what an Arnold Palmer is, I order the same thing as Maxine. When the meal comes, I realize that an Arnold Palmer is some weird name for lemonade and iced tea mixed together. It's actually pretty good. So is the salmon and arugula. Maxine starts with a small talk, but I can't muster the fakeness. I'm still thinking about what she said on our way here. What did you mean when you said that people in North Portland live in a bubble? I live in North Portland, and I... Oh no, not you specifically. I mean that I know a lot of people who only stay within the small confinement of their blocks. They don't really go out of their neighborhood to explore other areas. Maxine squeezes a lemon into her drink. I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Maxine, but I don't like her talking about my friends like she knows them, like she understands anything about them. Maybe they can't afford these places, I tell her. Yes, well, maybe the museum is a little pricey, Maxine says. But I think they have special discounts for families who can't afford full admission. All that info is on their website. Well, not every family has a computer. And if they do, they might not have the internet, I tell her. Maxine is full of ideas. There are a lot of free things, too. I mean, even taking a drive to Monoma Falls or going to Bonneville Dam. Yeah, well, my mom doesn't have a car. So there goes that idea, I say. And if she did, I'm sure she'd need to be conservative on where to drive in order to keep gas in the car. Maxine shakes her head at me. Always the pessimist, she says laughing. Always the realist, I think. Always the poorest. Maxine goes on talking, not even realizing she's so oblivious. We've been at the restaurant so long that most of the people who were here when they first came in are gone and a whole new crowd has come. How's your mom, Maxine asks. She's good. Working a lot, I say. And what is it that she does again? Again? I never told her. I tell Maxine about my mom working for Ms. Louise and how she's working for another woman on the weekends. Even though this is good news, Maxine's eyes are full of pity. She sounds like those annoying adults who take babies by the hand and talk in gibberish in that childless voice. So many people can't find work in this economy, she says. Your mom is lucky. I think she's not lucky. She works hard. Figured out a way to keep the lights on and the bills paid. Didn't give up. All this talk about my mom makes me wonder about Maxine's family. I ask her, what about your mother? What does she do? She's a surgeon, Maxine says. So she must have been at work a lot when you were younger, too. She was, actually. Yeah, she was. Do you have a mentor? No, I didn't, Maxine tells me. I wonder why people didn't think Maxine needed a mentor. Wonder why Maxine thinks she can be a mentor if she's never had one. The waitress asks if we need anything else before leaving the bill. Maxine says no and pulls out her wallet. Any other questions for me, Maxine says? I wait for the waitress to walk away, and then I say, yes. What makes you want to do this? Well, I guess I'm doing this because, well, I wanted to make a difference, and because I... I roll my eyes. The real reason, I tell her. Is it good money? Did you always want a little sister? There has to be a reason. Maxine laughs. Okay, here it is. The money does help, of course, and, um, let's see. Well, I'm really interested in working with young girls and women, especially women of color, in regards to their mental, physical, and emotional health. So I thought this would be a good experience for me, Maxine tells me. But why, I ask. I mean, what makes you want to do something like that? The waitress comes back with chocolate mints in the receipt. Maxine signs her name. I guess I'm doing it because I could have used someone helping me out when I was your age. It would have been nice to have someone to talk to. 
You think I need someone to talk to, I ask? I don't know. Do you? It takes me a while to answer. Not because I don't need someone, but because I don't want to say yes and ever thinking my mom's not a good mother. I don't want to think that since I'm some hood girl with a bunch of problems, she has to come and fix me. Jade, I know this is kind of awkward, Maxine says. I mean, we're still getting to know each other, and I know it's going to take time, but hopefully one day you feel like you can tell me anything. I tune out some of what Maxine is saying, because now it's starting to sound something like something she practiced, something Sabrina told her to say. But when she says, we're going to have so much fun with the other mentor-mentee pairs, I can't wait for us to grow and learn from each other. I ask her, how's that going to happen if you keep flaking out on activities? Maxine looks stunned that I actually said this. She takes a sip of her honored palmer, even though there's not much left to drink. You have every right to be upset with me for being so flaky today, Maxine says. And last month, I add. All I can say is I'm very sorry, and like I told you earlier, it won't happen again. I don't say anything. I'm just sitting here, thinking how different we are. How I'm not sure why Mrs. Parker thought we'd be a good pair. You have my word, Jade, Maxine says. I hope you'll give me another chance. One more chance. That's all she's got.